Well, let's turn in our Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter 16. Today we're coming to a, a huge turning point in the story, a huge turning point in the whole of the Bible. We meet for the first time David. No other human being is as significant in the whole of the Old Testament. And if we stress the phrase, no other human being, we would say no other human being is as significant as him in the whole of the Bible. He is only exceeded by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're introduced to him here. He's going to rule for 40 years. He is hugely significant. 61 chapters of the Bible are devoted to him. He is the author, the named author of 73 of the Psalms. He's Israel's first proper king. And whenever you do a word count, even in our English versions, of the names of certain key individuals, we find that Abraham is mentioned 233 times. Jacob is mentioned 363 times. Moses is mentioned a colossal 803 times. And David is mentioned nearly a thousand times. He is a significant leap ahead of everyone else. And as we start uh, looking at David, we want to hold two things in mind. David is both a picture of Christ and a pattern for us. He's a picture of Christ and a pattern for us. And that's our, our outline this morning. And it's important that we hold those two things in balance because if we only think of him as we often do, as a pattern for us, well, we'll learn many life lessons, but we'll miss the biblical significance of David. Why is so much space devoted to him? Why, when we turn to the New Testament, do we find in Matthew 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Why is Mary described as, um, or sorry, Joseph described as a descendant of David? Why is Joseph told, that, or Mary told rather, that Jesus will be given the throne of his father David? The town where Jesus is to be born is described as Bethlehem, the town of David. Joseph goes there because he belonged to the house and line of David. And when Paul comes to describe the gospel in Romans 1, he describes it as the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly line was a descendant of David. So, Scripture places the person of Christ in the framework, as it were, of David. He, connects, he is connected closely to David because David paints this massive portrait 
of Christ. And so if we were only to look at the pattern, the life lessons from uh, David, we would miss out massively on understanding more about our Savior. God in the Old Testament paints these little miniature pictures of what the Messiah will be like so that we can have understanding. And so as we read through and we come to look at David fighting Goliath, there's a pattern of Christ. As we see David in his, as we'll see this morning, in all of his wilderness trials, we marvel at them and how they go on and on. There's a pattern of Christ, or a picture of Christ. And so it's important that we hold them in balance. And if we only went the other way and only saw a picture of Jesus, well, we would never learn any practical lessons for life. And yet we're told that these things are written for our benefit. And so uh, we want to see these two things, not just this morning, uh, but every week. That doesn't mean that Johnny and I will have the same two headings every week. A picture of Christ and a pattern uh, of Christ, or a pattern for us. But that's what I want you to have those two things in your minds. And so we come, first of all, to a picture of Christ. He's the Messiah. That's how Jesus is known. But the word Messiah means anointed. And here we have David being anointed. Uh, and as we, as we come to look at this anointing of David, we have this picture of our Messiah. And we want to note, first of all, that uh, we want to note, first of all, God's uh, surprising ways. God's surprising ways. As we start at verse 1, we find that Samuel is still upset over Saul. We sense in God's question a sense of, how long are you going to stay stuck in the past, Samuel? Now, Samuel's grief is understandable. Saul was meant to be king. And Samuel had invested a lot of time and effort in him. He had challenged him, he had rebuked him, and Saul, Saul stood for a failed experiment. But God says now it's time to move on. And he sends God, he sends Samuel rather, uh, to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Now we need to, uh, I suppose, see different things that are happening here. Uh, Samuel's worried. Why is he worried? Perhaps he's worried because Saul will find out. Um, and so Saul will come after Samuel at this point. And God says to Samuel that he is to, um, he is to take a heifer and he is to offer a sacrifice. And in offering a sacrifice, he is then to anoint David as king. Or no, anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. And we look at this and we think, hold on a minute, is this strictly honest? Um, well, if there's going to be an anointing, there's going to be a sacrifice, there's going to be a feast. That's all going to happen. And what God is saying to Samuel is, you don't need to tell Saul all the details if he were to ask. There's some things that Saul doesn't need to know. They are not things for him. And so Samuel goes on. He arrives at the village of Bethlehem and the, the leaders are terrified. They're afraid. They're trembling. And why is this? It might be perhaps because uh, they know that Saul and Samuel are at odds with each other. 
Or perhaps it's more likely that they're trembling because Samuel is, after all, a judge. He's a judge. And he's come to this small village. And what's he come to this small village for? Has he heard about some injustice that has been done? And so they're on edge. And as we start to to look at this, we see that here's God's unlikely ways. God's surprising ways amidst Samuel's fear and the, the elders' fear. Amidst the smallness of the village, God is going to do something. And Samuel meets with the villagers. And they start to have this feast. And Jesse's family is presented to to Samuel. And Eliab is presented first. And Samuel looks at him and thinks, this looks like kingly material. He looks tall. He looks strong. He looks handsome. And God says in verse uh, 7, he says that you are not to look at him like that. In verse 7, he says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things man looks at. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, so it's not a liab. Well, is it the next son, Abinadab? No, it's not him. Is it Shammah? No, it's not him. And as Eli, as, not Eli, as Jesse keeps presenting his sons to Samuel, there's fewer and fewer left. And it's not this one, and it's not this one, and it's not this one, and it's not this one. And they're all done. And then Samuel's sort of left scratching his head. And I love what Samuel does in verse 11. He asks, he asks Jesse, are these all your sons? Because what he's saying there is, God told me it would be one of your sons. It's none of your sons that are here. But it is to be one of your sons. So the only possible solution is that you must have another son. Samuel's operating by faith. It's a bit like when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham, although he'd never seen a resurrection, reckoned that God could raise the dead because God had promised that his offspring would come through Isaac and they hadn't had any children through Isaac yet. And so if he was to obey God and put Isaac to death, then God would have to raise him from the dead because God always keeps his word. And God had said to Samuel here that it would be one of Jesse's sons and yet God had said, no, 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 seven times. there's, There's a lesson for us to hang on to God's word even when it doesn't seem like it's going to be fulfilled. So, Jesse says there is another son. Yes, that's right. He's, he's the youngest. Actually, might be translated the smallest. And he's out in the field. Send for him. So they send for him. And they wait. Love to know how long they waited. You know, was it, was it a far field? Was it half a day away? You know, they have to wait. The food's ready for the feast. But Samuel says, no, we're waiting. And David appears. And God says, this is the one. Anoint him. Rise and anoint him. He is the one. Now, this is surprising and startling. And it's surprising for a number of reasons. 
some of them are certain and some of them are perhaps a little bit uncertain. But this is surprising because this is the least of Jesse's sons. This is the eighth one. This is surprising because this is Bethlehem. It's a nowhere village. This is surprising because uh, it's because of Jesse's heritage. Jesse, his grandmother, was a Moabite. God really is going to anoint a descendant of a Moabite to be king from this nowhere village. And it's not even the tallest, strongest, firstborn son. It's number eight on the, on the list. And he's considered not even important enough to be at the feast. The prophet of God is coming. Away you and look after the sheep. We're all getting dressed up and going to the feast. So David, he's not even seen. In fact, it, it seems to be, because he's looking after the sheep, that he is consigned to a servant's role. And so, as we, as we look at God's surprising choice, there, there are things that, that are certain about it that, that make it seem surprising. But also, as we read between the lines of Scripture, there may be some other things that make it surprising as well. As we read through Scripture, we find that David has two sisters, Abigail and Zeruiah. But we're also told in 2 Samuel 17, in verse 25, that these two sisters, their father was a man called Nahash, not Jesse. And so it's possible that David and these two sisters are children of a second wife, which might go some way to explain the hostile undercurrent between the brothers and David. And that hostile undercurrent echoes a little bit the hostility between Joseph and his brothers because there was a second wife in the story. Do you see? And it explains something that David says in Psalm 69 where he talks about his brothers being against him. Now, he could just mean that his brother Israelites were against him uh, uh, in the time of Saul, or it could actually mean his brothers. But then there's another, another thing that some scholars wonder about. It may be that David, that David's mother wasn't married to Jesse when David was conceived, that there may be a question mark over his birth. Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was conceived in iniquity. And if that's the case, there's something even more surprising about God's choice for his anointed king. Do you see? So here, here we have God's surprising ways. There are things that we can be certain of that definitely make it surprising. But reading between the lines, there may also be other things that make it even more surprising. And so there's God's surprising choice. And then there's God's equipping uh, spirit. We see that as well as we're thinking about the picture of Christ. We read immediately after he's anointed, verse uh, 13, that the, on that day the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. That's something fresh and new in the New Testament. Uh, The Holy Spirit came on people in power, yes. It came on Samson, it came on Saul. The Holy Spirit came to them to equip them to do their work. But we're told here from this day on, this seems to be a permanent, a special anointing of the Holy Spirit comes to David to equip him to do something unique. And as we read on, we find a terrible contrast that the Spirit departs from Saul. And worse than the Spirit departing, Saul is terrorized by an evil spirit, we're told, from God. Now, we may have all kinds of questions about this, but I think, again, at the very least, it shows us God's sovereignty over all all the, the realms that there are. Remember in the book of Job how Satan had to come and even ask permission from God to to afflict Job. And it may be here that God in an act of judgment is sending an evil spirit to deal with Saul. To bring trouble into his life for all of Saul's rejecting of him. But it's it's a terrifying contrast with what happens to David. David receives the Spirit, in a fresh and new way in the Old Testament. And Saul, on the other hand, finds himself tormented intermittently by some sort of evil uh, spirit. It may just also, some scholars think, be a spirit of misery, someone that brings trial and, and hardship into his life. But whatever it is, it's deeply unpleasant. But David, the focus is on him receiving this equipping spirit and he's going to need it because after this he's going to go out into Saul's service and we're going to find him having to uh, resist Saul's attacks. We're going to find him eventually out into the wilderness running and being tested and tempted and harassed and hounded And it's the Holy Spirit is going to sustain David through all of this. It's going to equip David to live for for God. And here's God's equipping spirit. Here's this picture of Christ that is being painted for us. And I want us to see how it is a picture of Christ. We see it in Christ being In the similar way, a surprising choice. Think of of what we're told about and we're told in Isaiah 53 that he has no beauty or majesty, that we would be attracted to him. We're told about Jesus that he is born in a nowhere place. He's born in Bethlehem. That he comes from a nowhere place, from Nazareth. Remember how Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Nazareth is in Galilee. And remember what the scribes said to Nicodemus. Look into it yourself and you'll see that nothing or no prophet ever came from Galilee. He came from a nowhere place. He came uh, and there was nothing attractive about him that we should desire him. This is the way that God works. And so too with Jesus. Even in his own family. 
he was misunderstood and there was a sort of a, a, an antagonism or a hostility to him. And about Jesus, there was this question mark over his birth and over his heritage. You know, they said to him, we don't even know who his father is. As for this fellow, we don't even know who his father is. And you can imagine the, the taunts that fell on Christ. And so here is the unlikely ways of God. But why is this pattern important to us? Why is this picture important to us? Because we see with David that he is going to be God's king. We see in David that he is going to triumph and rule. And we see that despite the unlikeliness of it all, that David is the king. And that's a reminder to us today. It's a reminder to those who aren't yet Christians. That although Jesus, this ancient figure, might seem an unlikely candidate from a nowhere country and a nowhere village, and who doesn't seem to be powerful today, that that's actually the way God works. And that those who aren't Christians need and must not judge the world by sight, or judge the church and judge Christ by sight. It doesn't look impressive. It doesn't look triumphant. But that's to see as man sees. and It's to miss the king. That's what Samuel was in danger of doing, missing the king, because he was seeing as man sees. And we, that's the danger that people who haven't yet come to Christ are in, the danger of missing the king, because they see as man sees. So, for any who haven't yet put their trust in Christ, don't judge Jesus by sight. See him as the King of Kings. God has set his, his picture in the life of David to show that this is how he works. And for those of us who are Christians, here are God's unlikely ways. There is a hiddenness to God's King and God's Kingdom. We do not yet see Christ on the throne, but he has been anointed he has been given the, the keys and the titles of the kingdom. And we are not to judge by sight either. We are to see things as God sees them. And we're not to get discouraged when the church seems small or where Christ seems to be doing little. We are to see Christ uh, as God sees him. And we see too this picture of Christ in God's equipping of him. In giving the Holy Spirit, we see Christ anointed at his baptism, which is why we read from Matthew 3. We hear that voice from heaven saying, This is my Son, with him I am well pleased. And we see the Holy Spirit coming on him. And then what do we see next? We see Jesus out into the wilderness to do battle with temptation and testing. But God had painted that picture in the Old Testament with uh, David. And so did doesn't come as a surprise to us that this is what happened to Jesus because that was the pattern that God had set. And then what do we see the Spirit equipping David to do? We see the Spirit equipping David to, to bring peace and to banish an evil spirit and to bring blessing to people. That's what we see in this chapter, the Spirit equipping David to do. And what do we see when Jesus comes? Not only is he tempted and tested and he enabled to stand by the Spirit, but we find that he brings peace. He drives out evil spirits and he brings blessing to the people of this world. And so, 
Uh, here is this portrait of Christ before us. This is how God works. Don't get discouraged. This is how he worked in the past. This is how he works now. And that brings us, uh, secondly and more briefly then, to think of a pattern for us. A pattern for us. And as we look at the pattern for us here, we see the same things. There's God's surprising ways. God's surprising ways for how he works. And we're not to judge Christ's work by the way the world sees it. We've thought about that already. But there's also this challenge that comes to us as we consider God's sight and God's gaze and how God sees things. There's comfort. There's comfort and there's challenge. First of all, the comfort of it is this. We might look at ourselves and we might look at ourselves externally and we might feel like we are all over the place and that we are not a success in the world's eyes, either individually or as churches. We might look at ourselves and we might compare ourselves to others and say, look at them, they have life together and they are doing so well. And who am I? I am nothing and I am a nobody. But God doesn't look at the outside. God looks at the heart. And he's working in your life. And as you are seeking to grow in godliness, the purpose that God has for you is to live, is to know him and to live for him and to grow like him. And as you do that, God sees, not as man sees, but he sees right to the heart. And he's thrilled and he's delighted. And he says like he would say at the baptism of Christ, here is my son, here is my daughter. With them, I am well pleased. So here is this great comfort. We might feel as if we're not contributing much to the world or to life. We might be like David the servant boy looking after sheep, raising our children. And the world looks at us and thinks, what are you doing with your life? But God sees differently. He sees differently. Here's this pattern for us. God's surprising ways of building his kingdom. But it's also a challenge because he does see right to the heart. And we need to remember that so that we are not merely externally looking righteous, but that we are internally growing in righteousness. And that those, what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins, the sins that Christians tolerate because sure, well, we all have them and that's Nobody is perfect. No. We are called to be holy even as he is holy and we are called to be rooting out even those sins in our lives so that we are internally and externally consistent. God sees. So here's the pattern for us. He's not impressed by the outward. He's looking for the inward. But, wonderfully, the pattern keeps following. The second part of the pattern is that God gives his equipping spirit. He gives his equipping spirit and what encouragement there is for us here as we seek to grow in godliness. As we, as we seek to have the inside match the outside, God gives his spirit to do just that. He equips us to do it. He equipped David to live in that tension between he had been declared king and he wasn't yet king. 
And there's a tension that we are called to live in between Jesus triumphing at the cross and rising into heaven and Jesus coming and making all things new. And we live in this tension where we, we could lose hope and we could get discouraged or we have to keep plodding on. David was equipped by God by giving the Spirit. And you are equipped by God to live in that pressure by His giving of the Spirit. Here's our God equipping us to live for Him, equipping us to grow more like Christ, even as His ways are surprising, even as they're drawn out, even as things seem to be going slower than we would want. God equips us to keep on going. And so let's not get discouraged. Let's not panic. Let's not think, you know, we need to learn a lesson or two from the world around us and how to grow the church. For that was kind of what Samuel was falling into when he looked at Eliab and said, this is the one. And we put our head in our hands and we say, Samuel, did you not learn from Saul that height and good looks and broad shoulders aren't the deal? One writer says, Like Samuel, we have the tendency to flirt with Eliab even though we have been burned by Saul. We don't need to copy the world in its ways to see God's church flourish. We are to keep going, equipped by the Spirit, growing in Christ-likeness, remembering that our King has been anointed and God has set him in his holy hill and God has called the nations of this world to be wise and to kiss the Son. So we are not wasting our time in following our Saviour. So keep going. Keep going. Don't be surprised at God's surprising ways. Don't be caught off guard by them. And keep going, knowing that he has given you his Spirit and if that spirit can keep David safe in the wilderness, and that spirit can keep Jesus faithful in the wilderness, that spirit can keep us faithful and equip us as we seek to live for him. A picture of a great Savior and a pattern for us as we live for the Savior. Amen. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, you know that we are slow of heart and mind, and so we thank you that you have given us lots of portraits of our Savior. Portraits from Noah, portraits from Abraham, portraits from Moses, portraits from Samson, portraits in the, the, the greatest portrait in David, so that we can see what our Savior is like so that we can see your artistic style, as it were, uh, and so that we can grasp the richness of who Jesus is. We thank you that the, the portrait of Jesus is not simply confined to the Gospels, but that it is multi-layered, coming from the Old Testament over and over again. As we look at each of these people, we see glorious pictures of Christ. And yet, we thank you that they weren't Christ. For these men were flawed and fallen. And we thank you 
that whilst they point us to Christ, that they do point us to Christ, that there was a one who would come who would have no flaws and who would rescue his people from wickedness. And Father, we thank you too that you have equipped us by your Spirit. And Father, we pray that you would equip us to live in this world and not just to be faithful, but to go further and to be like David was a means of blessing to the people around us as David was a blessing to Saul. Let us be a blessing in this broken world as we live for Christ, equipped by the Spirit. Use us to bring light into darkness, comfort into grief, hope into despair. Let us bring peace where there is turmoil. Father, use us as your Son's ambassadors in this world. We ask it for Christ's sake and Christ's glory. Amen.